Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Thomas Jonas, CEO and co-founder of Nature's Find. Nature's Find, previously known as Sustainable Bioproducts, makes products from phi, a fungi-derived protein from a microbe that was discovered in a geothermal spring in Yellowstone National Park. The company has said the protein product is suitable for meat and dairy analogs, and it recently received approval from the FDA to use phi protein in food products. We have a great discussion in this episode about the origin story for the company, why Thomas has chosen to focus in this area, the company's approach, progress to date, some of the key milestones that they're driving towards over the next 12 months. We talk about their long vision, and then we have a great discussion about the alternative protein landscape and the different approaches there, the trade-offs of these approaches, and where Phi and Nature's Find fit in. Thomas, welcome to the show. Hey, Jason. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. Just past the recent announcement that you just had, I'd imagine that you're a busy guy. We're pretty excited. We just announced our third round of funding, so our C round. So we raised uh, $350 million led by SoftBank. And now it's going to be the mad rush to scaling up. And uh, it's, it's exciting time. Lots to do. Well, congratulations on that. And yeah, I guess my first question is scaling up. What is Nature's Find? Nature's Find is a food tech company. We're based in Chicago. I'm actually talking to you from the old stockyard. For those of you who are familiar with Chicago, it's literally what used to be the center of the meat industry. And what we do here is a new type of protein. It's a fungi-based protein. And uh, the company was based on research that came out of work that we did for NASA, that my, my co-founder, Mark Kozubal, did for NASA at the time. The objective of that research was to try to figure out 
if NASA was going to send a probe to a moon of Saturn or to Mars, how do you look for life in that very different environment? And that's really put us on a path on exploring life in a very different environment, which are the acidic volcanic springs of Yellowstone. So we discovered a bunch of microorganisms there, and, and one in particular, which we used to develop the technology, which is an, an, an amazing microorganism, which is not a plant, which is not an animal. It's part of that third branch of life that is all around us and that we never think about, and that's the fungi. You can say fun guys if you want. You know, I like, I like that, the terminology. Fungi are amazing. I mean, they are literally... I don't know where you are when you're listening to, to us right now, but you are going to be breathing some spores. And it's okay. Don't panic. You've been breathing these spores for your entire life and you've been fine and you're okay. They are literally all around us and they have a big role in nature. There are actually many big roles in nature. They have a lot of functions. And one of the things that's very interesting about fungi is that they're actually closer to you and me than they are to a plant. Our branch of fungi and animals kind of separated from plants and then we separated from fungi but you know next time you walk on your where you go shopping for groceries and you pass the carrots and you pass the mushroom you just get a nod to the mushrooms because they are your cousin and the carrot is a more distant cousin i want to get into all about what this fungi does and what nature's fine does with this fungi but before we do maybe just talk a little bit about your journey and how you and mark came together how you and fungi came together and how this all came to be. So you, you talked about Mark, you know, doing the research at Yellowstone, but what about Thomas? If anybody thought this was a Chicago accent, I really did amazingly well. And I'm very proud. I'm French. People probably figure that out. Born and raised. I went to business school in France. Then I did a stunt in the, in the French Air Force. Then I went to Hong Kong and I had my first job in Hong Kong, then went back to France did some strategy consulting that happens to some, you know, some people get into that stuff. And then I ended up, and that's where I, I think things start to get interesting when I look at the arch of the past few years. I ended up being working in plastic packaging. Talking to you, I mean, like, come on. I'm the guy who is doing things that are good for the planet now that's, that used to do plastic packaging that was ended up in the ocean. That's kind of what I've been trying to do over the past few years. So I, was, I came to the U.S. 17 years ago, I think, to head a plastic packaging company, which was doing plastic packaging for beauty and personal care. A big one, right? Don't be humble. At the time, it was the biggest French company in, in this sort of plastic packaging and the you know, the biggest customers were Estee Lauder, L'Oreal, Maybelline, all these brands that are number one CPG brands in, in the space. And then I went on to work for another American packaging company, and we were one of the biggest in the world in pumps and sprayers. So everything from the fragrance pump on Chanel number no. five to Windex, literally. So all these sort of things. And all of these, yes, it's plastic. To be honest, at the time... I stopped doing that over probably around 10 years ago. But I, I didn't think about it the way I think about it today and the way I looked at it today. It sounds weird to say this now that we know what we know. And I can't really say that we didn't know and we didn't have a clue because that, that would be wrong and that wouldn't be right. But we didn't fully, I think, understand and grasp what exactly the consequences were of doing all this plastic packaging. I did a turnaround on the activity and I had made a little bit of money and I had a chance to start to think about things a little bit differently. And I went on a two-week vacation 
with my then pregnant wife at the time and my little daughter, who was two year old. And after two weeks, I asked my wife, do you mind if we stay another two weeks? And she was like, no. And then after another two weeks, I say, how about another two weeks? And she said, no. There are another two weeks, said, should we stay another two weeks? I said, oh, come on. Uh, <laughs> and then I say, okay, well, look, you're pregnant. How about we have the baby here? And we ended up staying a year in Kauai. Yeah, you hadn't disclosed the spot when you were telling that story, but now it makes more sense <laughs> why you wanted to stay. <laughs> it was not too difficult to convince my wife that it, it was better to be pregnant on the North Shore of Kauai versus winter in New York. You don't want to be a pregnant lady in winter in New York. It's, it's a challenge. It's true. But the reality is I just didn't know what to do exactly. I had been president of this pretty large, you know, $700 million packaging company. I had been a successful executive or whatever that means. And I had a sense that I just didn't want that to be what I was going to, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong, but it's just, I thought I could do something else. And I really wasn't sure what it was. And if you go to Kauai and you go to some of the beaches in Kauai, the one that are not clean on a regular basis, you see all that plastic that accumulates. And that was kind of really, it would have been hypocritical not to realize that there was any connection between what I had been doing before and these plastic bottles that were landing up on the beaches. And I say plastic bottles. I mean, there was like, and there's way more than plastic bottles. There is all these things. That's like a movie script. You run one of the big companies doing that, and then you make some money, and then you go to Hawaii, and then you're on beautiful beaches in Hawaii, and then you see the waste that comes from the business that you built like that. That's almost poetic. It's almost poetic. Unless it happens to you personally, <laughs> because it's, you kind of have to re-examine what you've been doing. It's hard to explain because it sounds hypocritical, but you didn't have a sense that you were doing, I didn't have a sense that I was doing anything wrong. I was trying to run the business, do the best, buy the business, do the best for the employees, for the, you know, the, the investor. Like, I was just trying to do my job. And I know it's a horrible thing to say, because you have to think about the consequences of your job. And we all have a responsibility on what we're doing. That's fundamentally what it is. You are responsible. You're free and therefore you're responsible. And I guess I didn't quite think about that part. It's not uncommon that you start thinking about these sort of things when you have kids. Candidly, before I was just living my life and then I had a daughter and then my son was born. And then I got into thinking a little bit, it's boringly common, but about the world that you're leaving behind. So I think it's very common when you start having things, kids to think about that. That really put me on a journey starting to think about what else I could do and how I could do something that would be a little better. I'm French, so we tend to be a little more subdued about sentimental things and big words, so we don't talk about... We're very bad with work, with words like, I want to leave an impact and all that, because it's not exactly the way these things actually happen. Only in the movies, you just wake up in the morning saying, you figure it all and you know exactly what you want to do. That's not... What happened for most people, I'm sure, that, that come on your show, you, it's, it's a journey. It happens. You start thinking about these things. You start realizing. You start wondering what you could do. You want to try to align a little bit more what you believe in and what you can do. And that's kind of what happened to me. And, and that took me that year in Kauai, that year during which the number of email on my phone just dropped. Nobody cared about it. You know, I was just this guy that had gone away to Kauai and nobody really... I lost touch with a lot of people. I was just alone. I was just there doing my thing and thinking. 
But I remember very vividly, I was sitting on this beach called Anini Beach. For those of you who go on Kauai, North Shore, it's a gorgeous beach. And then and my son was there and he was just a few months old. And I was just looking at the ocean and a coconut fell behind me. And then suddenly it hit me that if I had been on the beach a million years ago or so, I would have seen exactly the same thing, the same ocean, the same sea, and probably a coconut would have fell behind just the same way. And I realized that I had, if I didn't want to just spend the rest of my life there, I'd better figure out what to do soon and get back to the world instead of living on that sort of island over there. I needed to get back in the world. And I met this gentleman on the same beach shortly after that, actually, Danny, and his kids came and tried to get the same toys of my daughter. And he, he walked over saying, oh, sorry, my kids, they're a bunch of thieves, but that's because of their mother. True story said that, which was really something you typically wouldn't say. That was fun. I remember very well our first conversation. He said to me, you know, people think that the brain is the most fantastic object in the universe, but I actually think the lever is more interesting because it makes all sorts of chemicals all the time in real time. And I thought, huh, that's an interesting guy. We decided to start starting to work together and looking at what we could do. And we started looking at technologies that could have an impact. And the model that we had, we were like a mini seed fund with our own money. And we tried to identify technologies that could have a positive impact across a wide range of things, whether it was biotech, whether it was material, whether it was energy. And we looked and we did, and we started a bunch of company in this categories. And the idea was always that one would pick up and we will focus our resources on that, which is exactly what happened. So I met Mark, we met Mark. And at the time when we met Mark, he had started the company, which was called Sustainable Bioproduct at the time. And he was trying to do biodiesel. He was supported by grant money and it was kind of running out of grant money. And so we shook hands and I took over the CEO of the company. Mark became CSO. And at the time, the company was really two and a half guys in a garage. And now we are about 130 people. It's been quite a journey. And we moved from doing biodiesel to making protein. And, and that has been the, all the journey and the development of this um, uh, breakthrough fermentation technology that we've done at Nature's Fine. And maybe talk a bit about that initial approach in biodiesel, What and then what didn't work about it, and then what led you down the path of pursuing protein next? When I met Mark, it was pretty obvious for a bunch of pretty simple macroeconomic reasons that biodiesel was not the best place to go with this organism. Let me back down a little bit and explain, and, and maybe I can give a little bit more of a picture around what this organism does and what's very interesting about it. So this organism is a fungi, and it evolved in the acidic volcanic springs of Yellowstone, which means it's coming from an environment which is just above the lava chamber in Yellowstone. So Yellowstone, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's about half the size of Switzerland altogether, and it's sitting on a gigantic volcanic chamber, lava chamber. And it's the biggest supervolcano of the planet. And what happens there is you have this, it's in the northwest of the US, it's in the mountain, so you have snow in the winter. The snow melts, it gets into the ground, and then it's heated by the lava chamber, and you have these geysers sometimes comes out. You have a lot of water that comes out. And when the water comes back up to the surface, it goes across the very unique geology that you find in volcanic areas. And it, it gets loaded with all sorts of compounds. The spring that we surveyed has one of the highest naturally occurring concentration of anything from arsenic to copper to sulfur. I mean, it's, it's really, it looks like a super fond 
rather than a natural spring, but it is a completely natural spring. It has also a pH and acidity level that's equivalent to your car battery. So it's literally a stream of acid that's coming out of the ground and that's going there. And everything that gets in it dies. Well, almost everything, and, but across very long period of time, and you're really talking about evolutionary scale of time, around many, many, many thousands of years, microorganisms managed to colonize this incredible environment because life finds a way and life found a way adapted. And these microorganisms have developed an ability to be very efficient with the very limited resources that they can find in these environments, which is fascinating for us as a species today because there is nothing more important for us to learn to do more with less. And that organism is nature exhibit one at doing more with less. So it had to survive with almost nothing in a completely barren environment. So it developed an extraordinary efficiency at using whatever was there, whatever resources it could use there. The whole development of our technology was to harness that, leverage that, and develop a fermentation process that really enable us to do that. But there is no book that tells you how to cultivate acidophile microorganisms that you discovered in a volcanic spring. So you have to figure out these things. And we had to do a lot of really deep biotech research, which fortunately was supported across the years by NASA, by the National Science Foundation. We got a lot of support from the National Foundation, by the USDA, by the EPA. And that really enabled us to get the technology, the fermentation technology to the next level. So biodiesel was a really interesting option initially because the organisms can make a lot of oils using a bunch of waste product, waste material, lignocellulosic waste material, using its superior enzymatic capabilities. And that's really the interesting thing here. You have superior enzymatic capabilities. Enzymatic capabilities mean that the organism can take a bunch of simple material from plants and break that down. And at the time, it could easily turn it into oil. We modify the growth environment to switch the function and it's completely natural those are abilities that the organism had but to switch the organism from making a lot of oils to making a lot of proteins that's really a big part of the break in the technology we have the ability to use this organism to make a lot of high quality protein a complete protein with all the essential amino acid that you and i need to build and maintain a healthy body had you ever been in this type of r&d intensive environment before. I would imagine running a big, many hundreds of millions of dollar plastics company that you probably spent a lot more time in Excel than than in the lab or PowerPoint or in WebEx back in the day when that was still a thing. So, well, I mean, was this a foreign language to you or how did you come about finding your way into that and why was it a fit? Well, company building, it's a sport team. What matters is that everyone play their position. So you need to know what you can do well, and you need to make sure you have the right people who can do well what you cannot do. I certainly do not have any pretension to be a biotech scientist, and we have a whole team of phenomenal people. I think the way I was thinking about my job is that I have to be the guy who asks the question that makes sense in terms of guiding the science toward solving questions that are relevant to build a business. The thing that's really tricky when you are into deep science is that the real currency is new knowledge. And that currency in itself may or may not have economic value. You might be able to just build another mousetrap in a different way 
And that may or may not be better than an existing mousetrap. And that's really a big part of the scientific discovery process. And you don't really know until you've discovered the new mousetrap. A big part of what I was trying to bring to the party here in this constant conversation that I was having with the R&D team is how do we make sure we work on what is going to put us on a path to have something that could be a business, that could have, that could solve big problems that would have some level of value. And that's really what we focus on. So I have always read a lot of science. It's kind of thing I love to do. So whether it's physics, whether it's biology. So those things are things that I read, that I've always read kind of for fun in my, I just enjoy it. I just find it fascinating. So I'm very curious about this thing. I managed to get enough knowledge to be able to ask the questions, not necessarily to fully understand the answers, but asking the right question as always pretty much always, I think, in whatever business is 90% of what you need to do. What is the right question? What is it that really makes sense? What is it that you should be working on? That's kind of my job. One thing that VCs like to say, and and maybe they drill into your head in business school for better or for worse, is that you don't want to be a technology in, in search of solutions. It strikes me that this fungi was essentially that. So how do you feel about that idiom? And is this an exception or, or do you think that this is actually a way to start a business that can be repeatable and should be? I absolutely do not think that it should be a way of, of, of setting up a business. Usually I'm the one who say a technology looking for a solution is really a bad place to start. But here is the thing though. I think it's all about the gradation of that. And it's all about, again, defining the question. At the very early stage, before you start pumping money behind an idea, you need to ask yourself in a very honest fashion, if I have this technology, and if you're looking for a solution, then is it going to deliver on problem A, problem B, and problem C a better option than the existing option? If the answer gets to be yes, then it's worth continuing and developing the technology to the next level. If the answer is no, then you have to stop here. You're going to spin your wheels forever or you risk the risk of spinning your wheels forever trying to find that thing. So we set up very early a few questions along this line and we were able to demonstrate that there was a real advantage from making protein. So that enabled us to continue on that path. It was very important to make sure we were not going freely, trying every possible problem under the sun as you would try a pair of shoe and seeing if it fits. We zoomed very early on on a very limited amount of business application. We design experiments so that we can validate quickly or if yes or no, there was a fit and a way forward. And then we executed from there. We took a little bit of a risk, but I think you kind of have, right? You kind of have to take a little bit of risk. There are different level of risk. You have to make sure you understand the level of risk you're taking. That's the key. And you can never fall in love with an idea and a technology just because you're the one who discovered it. That's a very dangerous thing to do. And so when you discovered it, had fungi ever been used to produce proteins in this way? Absolutely. Actually, the interesting thing here is if you think about us humans, we've been doing agriculture for about 11,000 years. But before that, we were hunter-gatherers. And it's actually much easier to pick up a mushroom than it is to catch a rabbit. We've actually evolved to eat mushrooms over eons. They were a much bigger part of our food diet than they've been over the past 11,000 years because you actually cannot grow mushroom the same way you can grow 
a lot of the plant crops that we use. It's more, it re, yeah, there's other constraints. It's a little more complicated to scale it up in that way. But we are perfectly well suited and we have historically consumed fungi organisms quite a bit. There have been companies that have developed fungal systems for food using microscopic fungal organisms as well. The technology was very different than what we do. What we developed is a new type of fermentation, which we call air-liquid interface fermentation. And what we really do is looking at how the organism was evolving in the wild, we developed this system where we push the organism to set itself up at the surface of a liquid. And that's a very unique way. We don't do classic big submerged fermentation in large tanks. And typically people who do fermentation do very large tanks. It kind of looks like a petrochemical plant that type of fermentation. And that's not what we do. What we do is a tray-based system. So we have robots that move trays around and we grow things in tray. So it looks much more like vertical agriculture, kind of what you have in uh, some of the greenhouses where you grow lettuces or things like that, except that we grow protein and we don't really need light to do that. So what we grow in this tray looks like a slice of raw chicken breast, if that makes any sense. And the reason why it looks like that is because we're using an organism that has natively a filamentous texture. So that texture kind of mimics muscle filaments. It's not the same, but it kind of mimics muscle filaments. So this has a texture, it has a bounce. It's not like a piece of tofu. And what it is, so we call it phi, F-Y, phi. And phi is really a new protein platform. And we, we are able to use this protein platform to make things that range from yogurts to meat alternative to cheese, and many more, just as you can use animal protein to do a wide range of things. Is the goal here, from an impact standpoint, to get off of animal agriculture? So the goal is to offer a solution that provides you with the opportunity to do that. We use a fraction of the land, a fraction of the water. We emit a fraction of the greenhouse gas, of course, than regular agriculture. So we're here in Chicago. We're 10, 15 minutes from downtown Chicago in the stockyard. And this factory where I'm sitting today is in the process of being commissioned. So we're in the really final days of the commissioning. We've run a few early production runs. And when it's going to be fully operational, it will be able, in my very scientific non-US GAP unit of chicken nugget equivalent, it would be able to make as many ch chicken nugget as you would out of half a million chicken. But using, again, a fraction in the, of the resources, we literally took a warehouse here in Chicago and repurposed it into this protein production unit. The reason why we can do that and the neighbors that don't even have a clue is because there is no waste. Everything is calibrated in a way. When I say there is no waste, it's not, it's not true. There's a little bit of waste and it's very minimal. It's a little bit of water. We use water, we use air, we use some energy, but it's, again, it's a fraction of what you would use otherwise. I mean, what you're saying about waste and costs and those things, I can see why as a species, that's a good thing. And I can also see why, as a business person, it would be a good thing. What about from a consumer standpoint, if I'm eating products made from five versus, say, either other kinds of alternative proteins or meat-based protein or dairy or things like that? What are the trade-offs and what are the advantages that Phi brings that the others do not? One of the things that is very interesting about phi, to get back to one of the points I was mentioning earlier, the, the fact that it's separated from animals, you know, later than it's separated from plants. The cellular machinery inside the, the cells is much more like an animal with, with, with fungi organisms. And one of the consequences of that is that you have a lot of protein. 
and you have a protein profile that actually is very, very good. It's one of the reasons why this is a complete protein. And you have very, very, very few plants that are actually complete protein that really gives you the complete suite of uh, essential amino acid. And you do need you do need all this essential amino acid if you want to have a balanced diet. So of course you can supplement through a bunch of different plants that compensate in terms of profile their amino acids so that you get this balance. But it's great to have one source that has it all. It makes it easier. It makes it safer for your own health to have that. And that's something that we have nat- natively. The digestibility here is also very high. As I mentioned earlier, it's actually higher than beef. People think about beef as the big protein out there. This is more digestible than beef. So if you look at a lot of the plant-based, there are really not a lot that have that sort of profile. Pea is not a complete protein. There is some concern about digestibility of soy for some people. There's some anti-nutritional aspects in soy. There are some very real advantages there that I think is interesting is that from a consumer point of view, there has been a little bit of a pushback around some of the plant-based product in the sense that consumer perceived them a little bit as the new, you know, you might have seen some people saying, well, this is the new vegan junk food because it's very processed. The way you do a soy-based burger or a pea-based burger is you need to extract the protein fraction from the pea or from the soybean. Then once you have this nice fluffy white protein powder, you need to extrude it, process the texture in it, and then you need to process the water back in it. We don't have to do any of these things. So we have a very minimal processing. We pick up a sheet of protein that has moisture, that has texture, and that's what we use for the formulation. So we have a minimal level of processing. Another aspect that's very interesting is we developed an original neutral taste profile that really enable us to be very clean in the formulation of the taste and get very clean taste. So we don't have to mask strong flavor profile from plants. We can really use very simple, if we do a strawberry yogurt, we can use a very simple strawberry base to flavor it just like you would flavor yogurt. So that gives us a versatility that really enables us to go from meat to dairy. And it's something that we understand from the discussion we had with consumer that they really like. Because a lot of consumers want to have the product, they want to consume products that are better for them and better for the planet, but they don't always want a hamburger every single day. And when they find a source of protein that they like, one of the questions that they have is, how can I have this more often in my diet? And we are able to offer a range of product, a versatility that will enable people to have that in a format or another every day, every single day they want to, because it's a new protein platform. It's not just one particular application. And how do you take this to market? Are you building a brand yourselves or do you license this to the big food brands? So we're going to launch it in the coming months. So we're going to do a pre-launch in the Bay Area and then we'll be launching it in retailers in Chicago and then nationwide. And for us, at this particular moment in time, actually selling it, getting traction with retailer is really not the problem, not a challenge. There's a lot of interest, but we really want to make sure that we can scale up the capacity so that we don't disappoint the retailers and we are able to supply. So we're trying to go a little slow there just to make sure we don't overpromise and underdeliver. We want to make sure we have that supply chain that's ready to go. That is one of the challenge for this entire industry because you're really competing with an existing protein supply that has been around for hundreds of years in the US and thousands of years on the planet, which is the animal protein supply chain. And this completely new supply chain needs to be invented. It needs to be built. There is nobody that can 
turn to to provide protein for me and for my team who is working on the formulation, on the finished product, except ourselves. We are the one making it. So we will be launching that under our brand, Nature's Fine Brand, in the coming months. And we will be launching both a dairy format and a meat format. Dairy alternative and meat alternative format. So we'll be launching a couple of references of cream cheese, as well as some breakfast sausages. We're starting with breakfast. And as you think about staging and phasing, I mean, there's many different ways you could go. You could launch additional products. You could start licensing this to other food manufacturers and just kind of use your own as a driving range, if you will. How do you think about expansion paths? And also, how quickly would that come? I mean, you're clearly very well capitalized, but yet focus is so paramount in the early stages. So maybe just speak to any or all of that. For us, it is important that we can communicate and explain what this new thing called FI is. And I feel pretty strongly that the one that are the best qualified to do that and have this discussion with the general public is us. So you need to have this B to C dialogue. You need to explain what is this new technology? What is this new FI? What is this new protein? And I think it is very important for us that that dialogue, we have it directly. We have it with the consumer. And I thought candidly that it was a, it would have been a little dangerous to let a bunch of product manager at big food companies do that for us and hope they were going to do a good work. And the problem with that is if they were not, it would have been potentially catastrophic for us. So having the direct relationship with consumer, I think, is essential. And it really gives a lot of credibility. We are the one who found it. We are the one who, the technology. If you have any question, ask us. We'll explain whatever you need to know. We'll be there. We'll be transparent. We'll tell you everything you need you need to know and why it's good for you and why it's good for the client. So I think that was an important thing to do. Our goal is to create that brand, have this discussion. Because we're a protein platform and there are protein in so many things, we don't necessarily need to make every single product under the sun that contains protein. So I think there's some vertical that we will keep under our brands. And there are certain other verticals, certain other products where we might not and where we would appear more of a, as an ingredient what is important for me and for the companies we do that is to do that in a way that's co-branded. So I'm not interested in being just a random ingredient. I think it's important that it's recognized as phi. So we want to have a little bit of this phi inside, kind of an Intel inside. And the reason why we think it's valuable and the discussion we had with some very large companies actually validated that is that if anything, they want to be vocal about this new ingredient that they're bringing into their product. If they are formulating they want to reformulating to bring this protein. They want to be able to say, hey, it's good for you and it's good for the planet. And they want to piggyback and benefit from the educational work that we do on, on FI. We've had a lot of interest from several very large companies to co-brand products with them. And well, that's something we're very interested in doing. When you think about it from a consumer standpoint, what advice do you have as consumers navigate the shelves and they see plant-based this and lab-grown that and this type of protein and that type of protein. Like most consumers don't have their heads around any of this stuff. So how can they tell so that they are making good decisions for themselves, for their families, and for the planet? And again, that's why I think it's important to have this education work, this B2C conversation. It's why having people taste the product in store is important. And that's part of the work we're going to be doing in the coming 
months and years. There's a lot of education. There's no question. It's very interesting to look at the words that are being used. I'm sure what we're going to be seeing, which we already seen and what we'll see in the years to come, is a war of words, which is kind of, by the way, the sign of any dying industry. Right? Any dying industry that's trying to fight back, they start to police the language. And they want you to use certain words. They're trying to have the opponent use certain words rather than others. Lab-grown, by the way, is a good example of that. Lab-grown is really kind of something that's planted by the meat industry. It really is. Maybe I'm a plant from the meat industry. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I think you are. It's interesting. I don't think it really matters that much, to be honest. But I think it's interesting to notice that it's happening because nobody talks about we should have labeled that say that you have plant-based meats on one side and on the other one, you have meat out of dead carcasses of murdered animal. I'm just noticing the language. But there is no way that there's going to be some education to be done. Now, these being said, I also think that we completely underestimate consumers' flexibility and adaptation around food. We had one consumer when we were doing some consumer work that, that say that better than anybody else. She said, you know, five years ago, I probably would not have taken your, tried your product. But now I get it. It's like vegan burger meets kombucha, which is fascinating. And if you look at the way and the speed at which plant-based food has developed or the way kombucha has developed. I mean, you cannot stop in a highway stop, any you know, gas station anywhere in the country without having five different types of kombucha these days, especially in the Western part of the country. But that's not just true for this type of food. You have, this is what has always happened. Pizza was not invented in the US. The Irish potato famine was potato that was imported from a place that was really the other side of the world before, which was Peru. Chocolate, was considered a very, very weird product by the Spaniards when they got to Mexico and they were offered chocolate. I remember people telling me, I'm not going to have sushi. This is cat food. I don't, I'm not going to eat raw fish. But every time, again and again and again, this new food made it. And if you like it, then you're going to eat it. I think the key is to be able to demonstrate that you can make healthy product that are, taste good and that if you can do that, if it's healthy, if it tastes good, and if it's good for the environment, then people will buy it. What is interesting, I think it's something that has been said many times in your show, is you can see the new generation, uh, the Gen Z, voting with their wallet on things like that. So today, if you look at plant-based milk, they represent about 15% of milk consumption in the U.S., which is phenomenal if you think about what it was 10, 15 years ago. But what's even more phenomenal is when you look at the more specific demographics that below the age of 21 and it's actually difficult to get clear understanding of this demography because it's easier, it's more complicated to study younger consumer. But the reality is that number is probably twice what it is for the general population in the age group. So you're really seeing a sea change in terms of consumer behaviors around this type of application. And that is not something that's true just in the US. This is something that's true in Europe. There is similar pattern that's actually, you can see in places that go from Thailand to even Argentina, where meat consumption is drastically falling in the younger generation. So these things are moving very rapidly. For anyone listening, let's say there's someone out there who's building another kind of alternative protein in adjacent categories that are non-competitive. You've raised several rounds of financing and just raised $350 million. What advice would you have for that entrepreneur if they came to talk to you in terms of staging, phasing, and sources of capital along the way? 
first of all, I think, you know, I would recognize everybody as different situation, different technology position, different objective. I don't think there is a one size fits all strategy there. I think if you come up with a new technology, you want to make sure you understand the level at which it works before you raise money. You need to be very clear on what you can do, what you cannot do yet. And I think it's important to have that understanding with your investors. You don't want to have them invest on a misunderstanding. And I think that that's really critical. I would really recommend very strongly to choose investor that you like. But when you are in the business of building a company, if you have to fight your board, if you have to fight your investor in the process, it's going to be exhausting. So having people that you have a good alignment with, that you feel that there is an alignment, not only in the overall goal, I mean, that's of course is essential, but also at a more philosophical level on how, what you think matters, I think it's essential because otherwise you're going to have all sorts of hand trying to steer the wheel towards different direction. And that can be deadly. There are symmetries full of companies with dysfunctional boards because people were not really aligned on what they were thinking the mission was or the status of the company was. That is very important. And I think sometimes people look at very prestigious firm, big names, and, and they say, it would be great if I have them. And that's true. And it helps. There's no question. But that cannot be done at the expense of really having this alignment on what you're trying to build. Did you set out to raise $350 million in this latest round? We never really set up for this round to be that big, but there was a lot of interest and we thought it made sense to fit in the coffer and really give us the ability to accelerate, especially considering that what we want to do is to build that supply chain. So we're going to be building factories. One of the things that is important in the protein world is to understand that we're not going to be short of protein at the whole food in Palo Alto. Everybody in Palo Alto can relax. They're going to be fine. There's going to be protein. The real challenge is to build this protein supply chain in India, in China, in Asia, in Africa after that, which is going to add a billion people in the next few decades. The way we have a climate impact, and I'm sure everybody who's listening is well aware of that, is by providing to these geographies that are going to get the double impact of the demography explosion combined with climate change is to provide solutions that can address the desire of this population, the need that these populations have in an environment that's more and more challenged by climate change. And of course, the way we grow our food is dramatically impacted by climate change. And when you have all these populations that are center pretty damn close to the equator for a lot of them or, or closer to the equator, growing food is going to be an increasing problem. So for us, what does that mean? It means that we need to be prepared in the years to come to really roll out our technology in these geographies. And that's going to take capital. When you want to build this 10, 20, 30,000 ton facilities, it's going to take capital. So that's really why we will continue to put capital to work. We're not a software company. It's not just two guys creating something like that out of the blue. As I said, it's a team sport. We cut metal. We build things. We build these factories. And we will be building more of them, yes. So more money along, along the way will be required, absolutely. You talked about some constraints around supply chain and that it doesn't really exist in some of these new areas. What about supply? This fungi that was discovered in Yellowstone, is Yellowstone the only place where it exists? 
I had people asking me if we were going to put a factory in Yellowstone National Park. And the answer is absolutely not. We have a few fridges in the world where we keep the original sample and we never have to go back to Yellowstone. So think about it like yeast or like sourdough. During the COVID year, people have been working on sourdough a lot, sourdough culture. And there's been a lot about how some people got their sourdough culture from their grandmother. It's kind of like that. What's really interesting with microorganisms is the speed of duplication. And the key to better economics is coming from the speed of duplication. A simple way to think about it is from one cow to get two calves, it takes two years. From one cell of our microorganism to make two sons or daughter cells, it's a matter of hours. And that's the beauty of the power of two. Two times 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 two gets very quickly to very big numbers. Because of that, we can make a lot of biomass very rapidly, a lot of protein very rapidly, and we can we never have to go back. We just go back to the fridge, take one cell from time to time and restart from that. No supply issue in that perspective. So I'm going to be presumptuous for a moment. I'll probably presume wrong, but I was going to ask you what your biggest worry is in terms of risks. And what I think you'll tell me is the supply chain. We've got to get the supply chain right to keep up with demand. Demand is off the charts. And I guess in my mind, there's a different risk, which is that, you know, let's say demand from the retailers is off the charts to carry it. And let's say you get the supply chain and produce a whole ton of it. What happens if it gets on the shelves and consumers just don't like it? And is that the risk that keeps you up the most at night? The assumption you're making is that it tastes bad. That is really the assumption you're making when you're saying that. Or that consumers are fickle and that and that what I think doesn't matter because who knows, and especially consumers in different parts of the world and like, I can't predict. There's basically two assumptions you're making. One is that it tastes bad and the other one is that the food is weird. Those are the two things that would make you not want to buy it. And so we've done that again and again and again and again. First of all, the thing that really surprises people is that it, it actually tastes really good. Bill Gates, who is one of the investors through Breakthrough, was in 60 Minute, tried the product on 60 Minute, and it was the first time you know, we were showcasing the product in a public environment. And it was actually the first time Bill was having the product. And that was post-investment? And that was post-investment. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, man. He should have tried it before he wrote the check. But it sounds like he would have liked it anyways. The thing is, let me be very clear, I'm not slipping a $20 bill to Bill Gates for him to say good thing about our products. Bill Gates doesn't care about making money on our, I mean, I'm sure he, he's not doing breakthrough energy venture to make an extra buck. He's really genuinely trying to do something that's going to help and have a positive impact. So the reason why I'm mentioning that is if you go back online, you can find the sequence of Bill Gates trying the product and his reaction is the typical consumer reaction that we have. And we've done that again and again and again. People say, wow, it's good. And very often they say, wow, it's actually good. Because there is this, wait a minute, this is new food. Giving me this breakfast sausage, I don't know. But when people start eating it, they actually find that it tastes good. Look, I'm French. The French ambassador will come to my doorstep, take my passport and tear it in half if I start making bad food. It's just not an option for our company. Like, you know, we got, I got national pride here and I cannot do that. It's not acceptable. So the food is really good. And the other thing that's important is it's hard to make the point until you've seen the food, but the food is just very common in its aspect and its format. When we make a cream cheese, it just looks like a cream cheese. When we make a yogurt, it's just like a yogurt. Like there is no weirdness factor with our food. There is really none. 
There's nothing, there's no weird aftertaste. There's nothing that is strange. It's not any more strange than when you're drinking a beer. Beer are made using microbes and you're not thinking about, oh, I'm eating and drinking a bunch of microbes. When you're eating cheese, it's made by microbes. You're not thinking, oh, I'm eating a bunch of microbes here. It's very similar to that in the sense that it's, the formats are very, very common. In our brain, we actually have an evolutionary mechanism that makes us pause before eating stuff that are not common, that we don't typically eat. When people eat our product, there is no activation of that essential reflex. If we put a chicken nugget format in front of you, you're going to eat it saying, yeah, it's like a chicken nugget. So as it relates to the business, when you put your head on the pillow and your computer keeps running and you're worried, which if you tell me you're not, I don't believe you because you're an entrepreneur, what is it that keeps you up at night? To me, the number one thing is being able to scale up rapidly enough. It's a key thing when you are a technology that requires industrial investment. You're going to have to put CapEx out there and you need to do that at a scale where you get the efficiency of scale fast enough. The Death Valley is when you cannot do that fast enough and then you get into trouble and you run out of money and you don't have enough money to do the next big increment of capacity and that's where you start getting into trouble. So we, for us, we're very disciplined around that. We want to move fast. We want to make sure... We continue to increase the capabilities of the technology. And this is what we need to do really, 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 really fast. I'm very excited about the business opportunities. The reality is that the fundamental macroeconomics are very simple. It is not possible to do great protein for everyone using the animal supply chain. So people would say, well, you know, you can... You don't need to do industrial farming. You can do different type of agriculture. Sure, you can. Of course you can. But it's going to be very difficult to feed 10 billion. It's much easier to feed 3 billion people with that sort of less intense agriculture model. If you want to feed everybody in an environment where you don't get more land, some of these things have to change. And one of the things that's interesting to keep in mind is where do protein come from? There is a little bit of a misunderstanding around that. You, me, the cow, the chicken, and the pig, we do not make protein. It is that simple. We do not make new, new protein. We use a cow as a battery. We feed it protein that are coming from the animal feed, the corn, the soy, or whatever. And the protein is concentrated in the body of the cow, and then we eat the cow. Cow is like a protein battery for us. They do not make new protein. And we cannot make new protein either. The only creature on the planet who can make new proteins from non-protein are plants. And that's the beauty of traditional agriculture. And that's what we've been doing for 11,000 years or microorganisms. So we've been farming plants for 11,000 years. We're really now at the beginning of this new, more efficient farming, which is the farming of microbes. They are the only other source of these microorganisms are really the other the only other scalable source of protein. And that's why I think there is a tremendous opportunity there. Two final questions. One is just if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing that is outside of the scope of your control or nature's fine control or your investor's control that would most accelerate your progress, what would it be and how would you change it? There is one thing that I'd love where I'd love the conversation to be a little bit different, but it's not surprising because people care a lot about what they eat is that the hamburger has become such a 
a place for the culture war, people are putting feelings and emotion around these things that are above and beyond what these things really are. We've seen similar things with vaccination, where you have people that are anti-vaccination for reasons that have more to do with some of their other beliefs in other things that purely scientific. Or when they explain to you why they are against that, it's not necessarily for reasons that are coming from other roots than this really strong culture. The fact that this protein, new protein, find themselves on a fault line on cultures, it's really too bad. It's not a question. There are facts. And the fact is, there are going to be more of us and there are limited ability to produce food for everyone. So what are the options? What are the solutions? I'm going to try to simply summarize what I think you're saying you would change, which is that you would make feeding the planet sustainably nonpartisan. That's very well said. I think it should be completely nonpartisan. It's for the betterment of all of us and for the betterment of the planet and the ecosystem. And my last question is for anyone listening that's inspired about what you're doing, where do you need help? Who do you want to hear from? I'm very interested in getting some of the brightest engineers in biotech, in AI, in robotics. We have a fantastic team, but there's a lot more that we want to do technology and, and really looking for, if, you, if those are things that you're excited about, reach out. And if you want to build a new world with us, jump on board. And if you want to attach some links to job descriptions in the show notes, we're happy to do that as well. Sounds great. We'll make sure it's there. Sorry we went over, Thomas, but this was an awesome discussion. Congrats on the big milestone. Best of luck on the next phase of the journey. And I can't wait to try Nature's Fine products when they're on the shelves. Thanks, Jason. Hope you enjoy them. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, Please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.